0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. This program is being pre-recorded for Friday, February 26, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Right now it is Thursday evening, and my wife and I are camped out outside of Macon, Georgia, on the way to see some of our Christian identity brethren in South Carolina and North Carolina on our way to Bristol, Tennessee to see family. This evening, I'm going to present a review of a sermon by Bertrand Camperet. The sermon is titled, Who is your Savior? This is quite, we are quite dismayed by this. But perhaps six or eight weeks ago, we learned of a group, a group which for a long time had claimed to be Christian identity. I mean, we knew members of this group personally, or or at least online. So this group claimed to be Christian identity, but they have been led off into believing a Roman Catholic heresy, which is called Trinity, which is of course a word and a concept that is not found in scripture. Some members of this group are or were also participants in Christogenia Forums. <clears throat> so at first we addressed this by presenting a paper from Clifton Emahser several weeks ago, titled The Day The Word Became Flesh, and now we shall address it further by presenting a Bertrand Compare sermon. Who is your savior? Doing this, our main point is to show that traditional identity Christians, such as Bertrand Compere, understood that the Trinity heresy, and it is a heresy, is incompatible with biblical Christianity. For many simple reasons, the Roman Catholic Trinity heresy and we will call it that, we will call it Roman Catholic because that is where it began with the development of the Roman Catholic Church. For as many simple reasons, it is absolutely incompatible with what we call covenant theology. And therefore, it is incompatible with our view of Christian identity as Christian identity is based on covenant theology. It is also idolatry as it forms the one true God into three different persons perverting the biblical perception of elements of his being into the image of a man. The worst aspect of this is the Catholic claim that the Holy Spirit which is the Spirit of God, somehow becomes a person separate from God the Father and his Christ simply because of love, and that is their claim. From here, the possibilities for continued sophistry and idolatry are endless, but a critical foundation for understanding both covenant theology and the true nature of Yahshua Christ is understanding is an understanding of the relationship between Yahweh God and the children of Israel of Israel. Excuse me. When Yahweh took the children of Israel to himself as a peculiar people, he was expressing his purpose to keep the promises to Abraham. And at the same time, the collective people of Israel, the nation, was considered his bride, his wife, if you will. Thus we read in Isaiah chapter 54, For thy maker is thine husband, Yahweh of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. So we see right there in that one passage. And there are many, probably hundreds of other passages that corroborate one aspect of this passage or another. But right there we see that the creator is the same God who considered himself to be the husband of the children of Israel collectively as a nation and where it says the Lord of hosts is his name, of course, the Hebrew says Yahweh of hosts is his name. So the same person or the same entity is creator, husband, Yahweh, and redeemer, and God. While there are many other witnesses to this concept in the Old Testament, this one should suffice here. Being the creator of Israel, Yahweh was also the father. So from that perspective, we read in Isaiah chapter 63, where in a prophetic manner, the children of Israel are portrayed as saying, doubtless doubtless, thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledges us not. Thou, O Yahweh, O Lord, in the King James Version, O Yahweh, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. How many Redeemers can the children of Israel have when they are promised that Yahweh alone is their Redeemer? Of course, this portrayal was made of a time future to Isaiah's own. And it depicts the circumstances of the children of Israel in captivity, put off from God for their sins, which is the very reason they needed to be redeemed. So Yahweh God is the creator or maker, and the father and the husband and the redeemer of Israel. Yet in the gospel accounts, Yahshua Christ was called the creator in the epistles of Paul and the bridegroom and the redeemer of Israel in the gospels themselves. How could this be? How could this be so if they are separate persons? How could a husband be married by proxy? How can a son have his father's wife? Something for which Paul of Tarsus had condemned a certain Corinthian in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. How can a son die to release his mother from the law of the father? That, essentially, the father only dies by proxy. Where is the authority for any of that in the law? Where is any of that explained in the New Testament? Actually, it is all contrary to the law. And therefore, in the case of Yahweh and Yahshua Christ, the father and the son must be one and the same person or one entity, if you will. The putting off or putting away of Israel was described as a divorce in several passages of Scripture. Thus, we read in Isaiah chapter 50. Thus saith Yahweh, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Whom I have put away? Or which one of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Then again in Jeremiah chapter 33, speaking of Israel and Judah, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, speaking of the enemies of Israel, saying, The two families which Yahweh had chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people that they should no more be a nation before them. The enemies despised the children of Israel because allegorically they believed that their God, Yahweh, cast them off. So they had an opportunity to take advantage of that. The children of Israel, divorced for fornication and adultery, were worthy of death under the law. Yet somehow, Yahweh God, the husband, would not slay them. Instead, he had already promised to make a new covenant with them. So we read in the very next verses of that chapter of Jeremiah, Thus saith Yahweh, If my covenant be not with day and night, And if I have not appointed the ordinance of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. So in other words, as long as there are sun and moon, day and night, the ordinance of heaven, the children of Israel will always be Yahweh's people, and he will always have mercy on them. Likewise, speaking of the Israelites who were being divorced by Yahweh, in the very description of their being put off in Hosea, we see another promise of future reconciliation in Hosea chapter 2. And I will betroth thee, Yahweh speaking to the children of Israel, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know Yahweh. So if Yahweh promised to betroth Israel to himself forever, how could a son, which is a separate person, fulfill that role? That would be a violation of the law, and that would make Yahweh God himself in Hosea a liar. If the son is not the father, Yahweh God would be a liar in Hosea. The Roman Catholic Trinitarians attempt to get around that by constructing a false godhead and by claiming that God promised to betroth the children of Israel. And Christ, as God, was the bridegroom. But that's not what the scripture says. Yahweh said Yahweh would betroth the children of Israel. Not simply some Godhead that he is only a part of. Or that the Father is only a part of. Or that Christ is only a part of. That's not what the scripture says. That is sophistry. And it's basically idolatry. Man forming God in An image that man concocts, that man devises, or invents, or conjures. That's probably a better word. Paul of Tarsus, in Romans chapter 7, described how the children of Israel would be freed from their condemnation under the law, which made the way for their being reconciled to Yahweh their God in Christ. So, in Romans chapter 7, from verse 1, he says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, because Yahweh God keeps his own law, how that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law unto her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. She is freed from it. So then, if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. The children of Israel going off to join themselves to pagan gods and to alien people were caught with another man. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, so this verse, verse 4, proves that the first three verses were talking about the children of Israel collectively. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. The Christian should understand that the children of Israel should have been slain according to the law. But God chose to die so that they would not be slain. So we should recognize that we should have died instead of Christ and be consider ourselves dead to the law. As Paul says here, ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ that you should be married to another even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. If Christ is the husband that died to free Israel, the wife, from the law, so that Israel would not be condemned under the law, then Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh God incarnate and not a separate person because it was Yahweh God who had himself declared that he was the husband and that he was the Redeemer. Paul of Tarsus also explained that Christ was not a separate person from God, but rather Christ is the image of the person of God. Since God himself is not truly a person, In Hebrews chapter 1, he wrote, as it is translated in the King James Version, that Christ is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And that word is actually hubostasis, which means substance of people. We translate it as person because we being men have no other concept of the being of God who is invisible. And then Paul explains that Christ by himself purged our sins. As Yahweh God had promised in that same chapter of Jeremiah, which we have just cited, chapter 33, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. Yahweh said, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. Paul said that Christ by himself purged them of their sins and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. So Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, who by himself had kept that promise. By himself. The Catholic Trinitarians endeavored to obfuscate the plain truth of God with an artificial concept of a Godhead, another concept which is not found in Scripture. I understand that in the King James Version, the word Godhead appears two or three times, but it doesn't mean what the Roman Catholics say it means. The words translated as Godhead are th- thias and theotēs and they describe what comes from God. Thias is what comes from God, and Theotes is divinity or the state of being God, a state which, of course, only belongs to Yahweh our God. So the Catholic apparatus of a Godhead, into which they attempt to insert three separate persons, is an artificial construct of men. And we do not need this novel word or this novel concept, to describe what is, or what comes from, Yahweh our God. With this basic foundation of covenant theology, which we express with the term Christian identity, we shall now present a critical review of Bertrand Compare's sermon, Who is your Savior? As with nearly all of our sermons by Compere. This was also originally transcribed by Gene Snyder, and then prepared for publication on the internet, and edited by Clifton Emmeheiser. At the end of the sermon, Clifton added some of his own notes, and I will include them here also. Clifton had opened his notes with the remark, I will rate Comparé about 95% on this presentation, and I will not go into detail here concerning the 5%, with which I do not agree. Rather, I will reinforce compare's position with further evidence that there is but one God, and that is what Clifton does in his notes, but we shall save the rest for the end and present Who is Your Savior? by Bertrand compare interspersing quite a few notes of our own. So, Compré begins, and he says, all Christian denominations agree that Yahshua, and let me, before I even start here, let me just make the comment that listening to the original Compré tapes, the recordings, the sermons, he did not use the term Yahshua. He did not use the term Yahweh. He used the terms Jesus and Lord. Jean Snyder, who was a lifelong friend of Bertrand Compere's, she took it upon herself when she transcribed Compere's sermons to exchange the terms Jesus and Lord for Yahshua and Yahweh. So Clifton followed in that when he digitized Jean Snyder's transcriptions, and I will follow it here. But it's not original to compare. All Christian denominations agree that Yahshua is our Savior. The scriptural authority for this is very clear. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 11, chapter 2 verse 20, and chapter 3 verse 18 speaks of our Savior, Yahshua. And I will read those passages that they're brief from 2 Peter one eleven. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then from chapter 2, verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again tangled therein and overcome. The later end is worse with them than the beginning." And finally, from chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Compare goes on to say, First John chapter 4, verse 14 says, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, we must hold this in mind, as Compare will refer to Christ as Savior later on. Now, since John also called Christ the Son sent by the Father, Compare continues with that theme. Christians also agree that Yahshua is the Son of Yahweh, upon good authority. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 reads, the beginning of the Gospel of Yahshua the son of god john 134 states and i saw and bear record that this is the son of yahweh matthew chapter 3 verse 17 tells us and lo a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased now that it is established that christ is the son as well as the savior Compray describes a third aspect or function of Christ, and then a fourth. So he says. At least some of the churches also recognize that Yahshua is our Redeemer, although they haven't any clear idea of what redemption is. When one of your kinsmen sells himself into slavery because he has a hard turn in life and no other means by which to survive, a brother, or a near kinsman, can redeem him from slavery, buy him back. As we just read in Isaiah, in Isaiah, I think it was chapter 54, the children of Israel sold themselves into sin. So Yahshua Christ is our redeemer, buying back the children of Israel from sin. That's how it works. This is also in, in relation to the churches not understanding that Yahshua is our Redeemer. They, they admit it, but they don't really understand why or how. This is also on scriptural authority. Galatians chapter four, verses four and five says, But when the fullness of the time was done, Yahweh sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption. And of course, that is the position of sons that we might receive the adoption of sons. And this is probably more clear in Galatians chapter three, where Paul wrote from verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. But in a promise related to Christ, we read in Luke chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And again, among the disciples who were not entirely certain of the meaning of the crucifixion. In Luke chapter 4, I should say they were not yet entirely certain. We read in Luke chapter 24, This is on the road to a town outside of Jerusalem. I'm sorry, I just forgot the name. It just blew out of my mind. I think it was Siloam or something like that. And a man named Cleopas had said this, I believe. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. So, Christ is recognized as Redeemer, and a Son, and a Savior, and that's the point that Compré is trying to make, because he's going to compare it to the the words of Yahweh God in the prophet Isaiah. So, finally, Compré describes a fourth aspect of Christ, which is that he is the Word made flesh. Many Roman Catholic and denominational Christians which includes the so-called orthodox variety. They confuse the logos, or word, which is Christ, with various concepts of logos from Greek philosophy. I should say classical Greek philosophy. But Christians should be assured that John was asserting for Christ to be the embodiment of the word from Genesis chapter one, which declared, let there be, as Christ is also said to have created all things in Colossians chapter one, which Yahweh God the Father took credit for having done in Isaiah chapter 40. So if Christ is the word that said, let there be, and that word came from God, and that word was God, and God Yahweh God himself takes credit for having created all things, but Paul of Tarsus gives credit to Christ for having created all things. Well then, one and one and one equals one. They're all the same. They're not three. There in Isaiah, Yahweh declares, to whom then will you liken me or shall I be equal? saith the Holy One, saith the Holy One in Isaiah, not the Holy Three, (laughs) saith the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who has created these things that brings out their hosts by number? He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power. Not one fails. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? My way is hid from Yahweh, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator, and that equals a holy one, of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is he weary. There is no searching of his understanding. The only way to reconcile this with Paul's words in Colossians is to understand that Yahshua Christ is one and the same, but not a separate person with Yahweh God, the Father and Creator, as Paul wrote in Colossians, speaking of Christ, for by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth. Invisible and visible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So Comprey continues and says, finally, some of them take note that Yahshua is the word, a phrase only used by the Apostle John. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Now, there are more aspects, titles, and descriptions of Christ than these four. However, Compare evidently limited his descriptions to these in order to make his point. So he says, having agreed on these descriptive titles, the area of disagreement begins when the churches have to answer the question, who was he and what was he? They all agree Yahshua, whom they call Jesus, is in some way connected with the Godhead. And Compare used that term Godhead there, which I would not have used, but perhaps he's only describing what the churches claim. Through the centuries, there has been bitter and sometimes murderous disagreement as to the exact nature or degree of his divinity. Such disagreements spring from lack of knowledge of the Scriptures by substituting man's doctrines for the word of Yahweh. Let's look a little deeper into this. And before we do, here I think compare erred where he said that Yahshua is in some way connected with the Godhead. Because as we saw in the definitions of the words translated as Godhead, the Godhead is only what comes from God or the state of being God, which we may call divinity. So Paul also wrote of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, and he said, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, or divinity bodily, that word theotes, which is divinity We would translate that to say, for in him dwells all the fullness of the divinity bodily. While the body of Christ was formed after the manner of other men in the womb of his mother, he was a temple or tabernacle for Yahweh God himself, as Yahweh had also promised in Ezekiel chapter 37, where he said, My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Christ is that tabernacle of Ezekiel 37, verse 27. So now Compré rather appropriately asks, Have we one God or three? Under the Old Testament, the theologians were familiar with one God. Because the records and the manuscripts of the scriptures had been fraudulently changed by the priests and scribes, they called that one God, Lord, as I explained in my lesson, Who is Your God? And I believe we actually reviewed that some months ago here at Christigenia, maybe last year, I forget, but it wasn't too long ago. The people were told that Yahshua was also Lord. So some decided there must be two lords. The Holy Spirit, wrongly translated Holy Ghost in the King James Bible, is spoken of in the New Testament as greatly exalted. Maybe they had better not offend Yahshua by assigning him any lower position. And perhaps here Compare is referring to the words of Christ found in Matthew chapter 12, where he warned against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But as we have also asserted, Christ himself is the Holy Spirit. As we read in John chapter 14 that he promised the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, at this, and that was in verse 26, at the same time that he had also professed in verse 18 of that chapter, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And that word for comfortless is more literally translated as fatherless. Comforter, father, Jesus, they're all one and the same. Paul made the same equation. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he wrote, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the Lord is that spirit. The Lord is that spirit. Kyrios, which was a title in that chapter that Paul was using for Yahshua Christ. So when he says Kyrios there, in that passage, he means Jesus or Yahshua. Now, the Lord is that spirit, the Holy Spirit, period. Christ in John 14, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Yahshua Christ is the same as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an emanation from him, from his power. It is his power. It's Yahweh's power in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord. But Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate as a man. So it's their spirit. But they are one They are not three, and the Spirit is not a separate person. Now, the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So here we see the Holy Spirit described as the Spirit of the Lord and as Camperet began to describe here, Christ is described throughout the New Testament with the title Kyrios or Lord and that is the same title which the scribes had used in Greek texts wherever we see the Tetragrammaton or Yahweh in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. Christ is not some different curios as Yahweh. Christ is the same Lord. So in the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, we have curios as a title for both Yahweh, the Father and God of the Old Testament, and for Christ. But Paul and the other apostles were not confused. Rather, Paul had attested in Ephesians chapter 4 that there is one body, And one spirit. They don't have two separate spirits. Even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one Curios, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, they're one and the same, of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. If there is one spirit, then the Spirit of the Lord is the Holy Spirit. And if there is one Lord, then Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God the Father, the same Lord or Curios of both Old and New Testaments. So there is no Trinity, but only one God in several different manifestations. Continuing with compare, because so many doctrines of men were, incorporated into the Roman Catholic Church. He says, therefore, many began arguing that we had a trinity of gods, and I haven't collected all of the research yet, but someday perhaps I may. There were many so-called church fathers who were against the trinity. They weren't all on board with this idolatry, the greater number of so-called church fathers. At least, the ones we know about, because there's a lot of early Christian writers whose works were lost, destroyed, disrespected by the church, not preserved to us. The ones we have are more likely the most acceptable to the early Catholic church. But there were many of them even that were against the Trinity. So Compré says, many began arguing. That we had a trinity of gods. Since this is so, since this so obviously led right back to the pagan polytheism, they had to develop another dogma to meet this problem. That the three gods, between them, constituted but one god. And that is only hocus pocus with numbers. That's all it is. It's bullshit. It's deceit. So Compere says none of them could understand how this could be. So they said it was a great mystery, and to them it was. Perhaps it might be similar to the way many thousands of stockholders in Standard Oil Company make but one corporation out of them all. Compare making a pun, trying to be tongue-in-cheek, but the allegory is apt. So he continues, by the fourth century AD, the controversy between the Trinitarians and the believers in one God, and Compare really does go off the rail here, and and I will have to address this because I do not agree with it, and this is probably the 5% that Clifton did not agree with, because Clifton wrote on Arius and the Arian heresy. So, I'll start over and try to make it through the paragraph. By the 4th century AD, the controversy between the Trinitarians and the believers in one God, the later led by Arius, became so bitter that the Emperor Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Constantine commanded the divided church to settle its controversy at this council, the Trinitarians outnumbered the Arians. So on a numerical vote basis alone, the doctrine of the Trinity was adopted, even though I don't think the word Trinity is found in the Nicene literature from the Council of Nicaea. Perhaps some of you are thinking of 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, which reads, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and Holy Ghost, and these three are one. This verse wasn't in the original. It was added centuries after John wrote his epistles. None of the early Christian writers quote this verse. It was not cited as authority for the Trinitarian position at the Council of Nicaea, They surely would have triumphantly read it if it had been in existence then. There's a few things for me to address here. Actually, Arius, whose disciples were called Arians, did not believe in one God in the same manner that Christians should, as he did not esteem Christ to be God. So, he wasn't a perfect counterweight to the trinitarians far from it arianism believed that christ was distinct and subordinate to the father the first known mention of a trinity is probably in the writings of tertullian whom the catholic the roman catholic church had deemed a heretic for many other reasons but the roman catholic church believes christ is a separate person from god the father who is also a person and, separate from the Holy Spirit, which they call a third person of their imaginary Godhead, whereby they claim that the three are one. As we have said, that is a perversion of terms, since the words which are translated as Godhead bear no such meaning. The entire dichotomy, the dichotomy between Arius and the Trinitarians, the entire dichotomy is false. While the physical body of Christ surely was created by God, so is every other manifestation of God in the physical world. As God is invisible and does not have human features in the physical sense in which persons have them, Therefore, Christ is the image of the person of God, as Paul explained, and in him is the fullness of the divinity bodily, as Paul also explained. The created body of Christ is the tabernacle of God on earth, as Yahweh had promised, and therefore, Yahshua Christ is the one and only person of God. There is no other. Man cannot see the invisible God. When God wanted to interact with man, he had to create something to interact with man through. The light of Genesis chapter one, verse three, the word itself had to be created by God in order to be expressed. The burning in the bush had to be created by God. The pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, which led the children of Israel out of Egypt, had to be created by God. The rock in the desert was created by God. The body of Christ was created by God. An invisible God who doesn't need a a voice or human features in order to exist He has to think about it. He must create something in order to communicate with men in the physical world. Whether it's fire or words or sound or voice, it's something created. The body of Christ was created. It's the tabernacle of the eternal God who was not created, who has always existed. At the same time that they were addressing this Arian heresy, which was a heresy, and they understood that. At the same time, there were other philosophers or theologians to satisfy, and it seems that they prevailed. Many early so-called Christian writers were converted from various pagan philosophies, and they did not shed all of their pagan ideas. For example, Justin Martyr was a former Platonist. And in his writings, he cited Plato often. He didn't make a secret of of maintaining some of Plato's philosophical beliefs. He cited Plato right in his writing. He described a trinity. Justin. Not Plato. Justin described a trinity but not in the same terms which the later Roman Catholics described, a trinity. Justin was a Samaritan, who seems to have been ignorant of the writings of Paul of Tarsus. But a man who was much more influential, Clement of Alexandria, was also a Platonist, a follower of Plato as was another influential early Alexandrian, which was Origen. All three so-called church fathers borrowed from Platonism, or what is called Middle Platonism, and also adopted ideas from Gnosticism, even when they argued against the Gnostics. The 9th century archbishop, Photius I, of Constantinople, is said to have remarked in one that one treatise of Clement's was highly syncretic, featuring ideas of Hellenistic, Jewish, and Gnostic origin, and that syncretism is absolutely manifest in the writings of Justin in the writings of Clement, and in the writings of Origen. So we shall read the short article on the Demiurg, or Demiurgus, or Demiurge, perhaps. The Demiurg, D-E-M-I-U-R-G-E, is the creator god of both Platonists and Gnostics, because Gnostics also borrowed from Plato. And this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Demiurg, Greek demiurgus, meaning public worker. That's the literal meaning of the term. The plural demiurgoi. In philosophy, a subordinate God who fashions and arranges the physical world to make it conform to a rational and eternal ideal. Plato adapted the term, which in ancient Greece had originally been the ordinary word for craftsman or artisan, broadly interpreted to include not only manual workers, but also heralds, soothsayers, and physicians, and which in the 5th century BC had come to designate certain magistrates or elected officials. Plato used the term, in the dialogue, Timahius, an exposition of the, of cosmology in which the demiurge is the agent who takes the pre-existing materials of chaos, arranges them according to the models of eternal forms, and produces all the physical things of the world, including human bodies. The demiurge is sometimes thought of as the platonic personification of active reason. That would be the personification of logos. The term was later adopted by some of the Gnostics, who in their dualistic worldview saw the Demiurg as one of the forces of evil, who was responsible for the creation of the despised material world, and was wholly alien to the supreme God of goodness. Now, in part, we will continue reading on these Gnostics from the New World Encyclopedia. I will have the links to these articles. I I purposely use readily available sources in this exposition because they are rather accurate in explaining Roughly, the beliefs of Plato and the beliefs of the Gnostics in relation to these this creator God, especially. And this idea that the creator God is a separate God from the benevolent God the Father. Three separate meanings of the term may be distinguished. For Plato, the demiurge was a benevolent creator of the laws, heaven, or the world. Plotinus identified the demiurge as noose, which is mind, which is similar to, to logos, slightly different. Platonus identified the demiurge as noose, or divine reason, the first emanation of the one. In Gnosticism, the material universe is seen as evil, and the demiurge is the creator of this evil world, while out of Either out of ignorance or by evil design. Alternative Gnostic names for the demiurge include Yaldabaoth, Yeo, or Yah, Yaldabaoth, and several other variants. The Gnostics often identified the demiurge with the Hebrew God Yahweh. Christian opposition to this doctrine was one factor in the the decision of the church to include the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament in the Christian Bible, according to the New World Encyclopedia. I do not really agree with that last comment. The entire meaning of Catholic was the acceptance of both Old, and New Testaments, as I've often explained in the past. But a little further on, in that same source, for Neoplatonist writers like Plotinus, the demiurge was not the originator of the universe, but a second creator or cause. The first and highest God is the One, the Source, or the Monad. The monad emanated the noose, divine mind or reason, which Plotinus referred to as the demiurge. The monad emanated the noose. The Catholic Church teaches today in relation to Trinity that God, the Father, emanated the Holy Spirit. And... God the Son, Catholic Roman Catholicism is basically twisted up Gnosticism to sound like it agrees with the Bible, but it's actually teaching a form of Gnosticism. The article continues for just a little further. As Nous, the Demiurg is part of the three ordering principles, Arche the source of all things. Arche means beginning in Greek. Logos, the underlying order that is hidden beneath appearances. And Harmonia, numerical ratios in mathematics. In this Platonist claim to reveal Plato's true meaning, a doctrine he learned from Platonist tradition. But did not appear outside the academy or in Plato's texts. Writing in the third century CE or AD, Plotinus was clearly aware of Gnostic teachings about the demiurge and wrote in part in opposition to them. But the end is even worse. In relation to the gods of mythology, the demiurge is identified as Zeus within Plotinus's works. Among the early Christians whom Plotinus is said to have influenced are Augustine of Hippo and, indirectly through another disciple, Thomas Aquinas. So it is this backdrop of only slightly differing versions of what is basically the same philosophy wherein was developed the Trinity doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. At the same time, there were Jews and Judaizers influencing early Christians who had also branded Christians as idolaters for worshiping Yahshua Christ, a man as God. So another result of the Trinity doctrine, which we also believe was a cause of its development, is the fact that it leaves open a portion of the so-called Godhead so that Jews and later Muslims can claim to worship the same God when indeed they do not. Now Compare continues to speak of the so-called Johannine Kama. And he doesn't quite get it right. He got it close. The Johannine comma is a clause inserted in the passage, which is now known as 1 John chapter 5 verses 7 and 8, where it reads, and I will only read the added portion as it appears in the King James Version. In heaven, this is the middle of 1 John 5 verse 7, and it'll carry into the middle of verse 8. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. So that is the added portion. So 1 John 5, verses 7 and 8 should actually read without the added portion repeating the balance from the King James Version after the Johannine comma is removed, after the insertion is removed. It should really read, for there are three that bear record, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. Some manuscripts have an even longer insertion and others have the words of verse eight in a different order. So, concerning this addition to the texts, Compare says, "The first mention of this addition appears in the sixth century A.D., apparently just written in the margin as a comment in some Latin manu- in some Latin copies. Not one Greek manuscript earlier than the sixteenth century contains it, and that is true." Bible scholars are practically unanimous in their agreement that it was not in the original. Accordingly, it is omitted from most of the modern English translations, such as the Revised English Bible, American Revised Bible, Moffat, Farah Fenton, Smith and Goodspeed, Weymouth, Rotterham, Pannon, New World Translation, etc. Well, it's also omitted from the Christigenian New Testament, of course. The story of the Johannine Kama is actually a little more complex. The insertion appears in the Latin manuscripts at an earlier time, but it does not appear in any Greek manuscript dating, as far as I could find, before the 16th century. But it is also said to appear in the Latin manuscripts of Clement of Alexandria, it should be omitted from all Bible translations. So, compare continues. How do we answer this question? Are there three gods or only one? Only from the Bible, not from church hierarchies. Can we hope to get the true answer? Naturally, we first find it in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 records, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one God. As always, this is confirmed in the New Testament. For Yahshua said in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, this was the first of the commandments. This doesn't look much like a trinity, does it? And I think the most important point to consider in this light is that it would make no sense for this statement to appear at all if Christ had already existed as a distinct person who was also a God. But the Geneva Bible has this passage from Deuteronomy somewhat more correctly. And it reads, "Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord only, or I'm sorry, only, O-N-E-L-Y the lord our god is lord only and that is because the hebrew transliterating the important terms so that we understand what it says it reads the hebrew reads here o israel yahweh our god yahweh is one adding the verb is so that it makes sense in english It says in Hebrew, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. So we add that is in English, Yahweh is one, so that it makes sense in our language. Compare continues. (coughs) I'm sorry. Let's go on a little bit farther. According to the Trinitarians, Yahshua being the son, is one of the three gods. What does the Bible say about him? Remember, all the churches agree that Yahshua is the Savior. So let's find out who the Savior is. We find it first in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 and 11. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed, neither shall be after me. So no other gods in the Godhead were formed after Yahweh. He is the only God. So if Christ is God, he's not a God which emanated from God. He's not a God that was formed after God. He must be Yahweh. I, even I am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. Comparé says, and some of those remarks were my insertions, of course. Yahweh's Bible is always consistent. In Hosea chapter 13 verse 4, we find, Yet I am Yahweh thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God But me, for there is no savior besides me. Comparé says, Old Testament? Certainly. But listen to the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 1 begins, Paul, an apostle of Yahshua, by the commandment of Yahweh, or God in the Greek, our savior and Lord Yahshua Christ, which is our hope. In my opinion, the phrase God our Savior and Lord Yahshua Christ and all similar constructions are Hebrew parallelisms. Yahshua Christ is Lord, God, and Savior. Compare continues. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of Yahweh, or God, our Savior, but Paul isn't the only one who says this. Jude 25 says, To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. We see that Yahweh is our Savior, and in Isaiah chapter 43, 11, he says, Besides me, there is no Savior. Therefore, since the churches agree that Yahshua is our Savior, he must be Yahweh himself, this should not surprise anybody. It shouldn't surprise any Christian. Only a Jew would be offended. Compery goes on to cite Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah prophesied it. Therefore, Yahweh himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us or God is with us, is how I would translate that. This passage was cited in reference to Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So Compre goes on to cite another passage from Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 6 makes it unmistakably clear. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty Yahweh, or the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 may be a subject of controversy, where the Septuagint version of the passage is quite different. However, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which very often agree with the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text, actually agree with the Masoretic text for this passage of Isaiah. So, we have reason to reject the Septuagint version. Continuing with Compare. he says, the churches also agree that Yahshua is our Redeemer. But who is the Redeemer? Isaiah chapter 43 verse 14 speaks of Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 44.6 continues, Thus saith Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer. Isaiah 48.17 records, Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh your, your God again, we see that Yahshua must necessarily be Yahweh himself, for it is Yahweh who is our Redeemer. Then the Apostle John calls Yahshua the Word. Who is the Word? John chapter 1 verses 1 and 3 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this Word was not as I've said, the logos of the later Neoplatonists like Plotinus. Rather, Christ being the word made flesh is that, is the same as that God who spoke at the beginning saying, let there be as all things were made by Christ. So once again, Christ is Yahweh God who made all things. There is no room in this for a separate and distinct person who also holds the title of God. So, contemporary returns to the New Testament. And he says, Yahweh, or I'm sorry, Yahshua confirms this in John chapter 8, verse 19. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. No man could say that. Only Christ could say that because he is his father. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Joshua says, I and my father are one. John 12:45 continues, he that sees me sees him that sent me. In John chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, we read, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, so the Jews can't claim to worship a separate God, because no man comes to the Father except by Christ. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Master, show us the Father, and it suffices us. Yahshua said unto him, Have I been with you so long a time? And yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And the very next thing which Yahshua said to Philip, Compare omits here, and it is actually an expression of dismay as Christ asked him, And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? How do you say that, he's saying. How do you say that? As Paul wrote later in his epistle to the Hebrews, Christ is the image of the person of God. But the Greek word for express image, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, is not merely a reflection or a portrait. Rather, it is character. It is the Greek word, character which we have borrowed into English. So Compré continues, and he says, this leaves only one remaining question. Is Yahshua the only God? Just the Son of God? Or just one God out of three? Never turn to the churchmen for the answer. Why add their confusion to your own? You can only get the answer from the Bible. The Word of Yahweh. Trinitarians speak of three gods, consisting of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was mistranslated Holy Ghost in the King James Bible. Let's continue on and find out who these three are. First, let us define the words themselves. By definition, the Father must be the one who begot the Son. The Son must be the one who was begotten. We have already seen that Yahshua is the Father as well as the Son. What of the Holy Spirit? The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the father who begot the son, Yahshua. And this also leaves the Trinitarians in a conundrum. The Bible expressly states that Mary had conceived by the Holy Spirit. So how could Yahweh God be the father? Or how could the Father, as one person of God, be the Father of Christ if Christ was begotten by the Holy Spirit as a different person of God? And then, as the Roman Catholics assert, how could the Holy Spirit form a person emanating from Christ if Christ was actually fathered by the Holy Spirit? That's what they say that the Holy Spirit emanates from the Son. But in the Gospel, it's very clear that the Son emanated from the Holy Spirit. We have a conflict here. At the website, catholiceducation.org, we read the following, in part. The Father is from no one. The Son is from the Father only. Well, That That's um, news to the writers of the gospel. That's news to Matthew and Luke, who said that the Son is of the Holy Spirit. And the Catholics say, the Son is from the Father only. And the Holy Spirit is from both the Father and the Son equally. But the Son came from the Holy Spirit. Okay. I know that the Catholics are confused. And they've concocted all this bullshit, because that's really what it is. It's just a a false paradigm. The whole thing is a house of cards when you compare it to the scripture. They concocted this to please all of the competing concepts of God at the time. And you had the Gnostics and the Platonists and the Jews or the Judaized And they all had different concepts of what God should be. And the Trinity is a compromise. But it's not true. How does the Holy Spirit, as catholiceducation.org states, and the Holy Spirit is from both the Father and the Son equally, yet the Holy Spirit is the Father of the Son and not the Father. Read Matthew. Read the first few chapters of Matthew, the first couple of chapters of Luke. The Holy Spirit begot the Son. Catholiceducation.org says, and I'll start from the beginning. The Father is from no one. The Son is from the Father only. And the Holy Spirit is from both the Father and the Son equally. God has no beginning. He always is and always will be. The Father is the progenitor. The Son is the begotten. And the Holy Spirit is proceeding. Now that's a huge problem because that's a lie because the Son is begotten in the New Testament, in the Gospel, but the Holy Spirit is the progenitor of the Son. CatholicEducation.org goes on and it says, they are all one substance, equally great, equally all powerful, equally eternal. Then a little further on we read, the Father in eternally begetting the Son gave him his own substance as the Son himself testifies, what my Father has given me is greater than all. Well, that is not quite what Christ had said. But more importantly, in the account of the Gospel, the Son was begotten by the Holy Spirit and not by the Father. To try to make it work, the Roman Catholics insist that Christ existed in the Spirit as God the Son, equal with God the Father, before Christ was even born. However, why, if Christ existed beforehand, would the Holy Spirit need to impregnate the woman? Why would the Holy Spirit be needed to impregnate the woman if Christ already existed in the Spirit? Then it was Yahweh God, the Father, who spoke of himself in Isaiah chapter 40 and said, To whom will you liken me? This is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. The Catholic Church says that they are all equally great and equally all-powerful. And Yahweh God says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, to whom then will you liken me or shall I be equal? It is also Yahweh who said, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Neither my praise to graven images. That word character in Greek is an engraved image. But Christ is the character of the person of God, so he is God. The Trinity doctrine is a failure and in many more ways than that. Continuing with Comparé, he describes the conception of the Christ child, where we have already repeated his arguments. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 reads, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of Yahweh appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit, not of the Father in the Catholic idea of Trinity, is a separate person. Luke 1.35 records, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, not the Father. And the power of the highest, which is the Holy Spirit, shall overshadow thee. So the Holy Spirit isn't really a separate person. That idea is ridiculous. The Holy Spirit is actually the power of Yahweh God in the world. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also, that the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who begot the Son, and therefore, by the very definition of the word, the Holy Spirit is the Father. That was Compare, continuing with Compare, in John chapter 14. And he's citing verses 16 through 18 and verse 26. Yahshua says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. That comforter is Yahshua Christ. They are the same. But the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So now, Comparé appropriately concludes. Note this. The comforter whom the Father will send is the Holy Spirit. Who is it that shall come as the comforter? Comforter. Yahshua said, I will come to you. Therefore Yahshua, being God, and also the Father, is also the Holy Spirit. This must be so, for we have seen that the Holy Spirit is the Father who begot the Son. And of course, Christ said that, Paul of Tarsus said that Christ is the Spirit of the Lord. As we've already cited. So, Paul believed that same thing that Camperé expresses here, interpreting the words of Christ in John chapter 14. As we see in Compare's citation of Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit is the power of the highest and not a separate person. But Christ is also the Holy Spirit as he himself attested and therefore both manifestations of the same God, the Father, as he must also be the father of Christ. Returning to compare. So the trinity of three gods boils down to just one God, a God who is spirit, the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit, he begot a mortal body for his own use when he was to come as our savior and redeemer. In thus begetting the body, the Holy Spirit became the Father. He himself inhabited that body which the Holy Spirit had begotten and in doing so became the Son. This was one person acting in three different capacities. And over the course of history, Yahweh God acted in more than three capacities. As the story of Exodus shows that he was the pillar of fire and the burning in the bush, and the rock in the desert, and more. But it is all one God and one person, the Holy Spirit being his power and the Christ being his tabernacle. Now compare turns to names. Finally, what is his name? In nearly all our English language translations of the Bible, we find it written Jesus. We can be sure that this is not the name by which he was known when he lived among us in human form. Practically all of the English Bibles are translated from Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Greek was a foreign language to the people of Palestine. However, some of the better educated among the Palestinians spoke Greek in addition to their native language, Aramaic. The Greek manuscripts are translations of the original Aramaic, which was the language spoken by Yahshua and all his friends and disciples. Now, perhaps Clifton should have said that he only agreed with 90% of this paper, rather than 95 Comprey was wrong about Arius, and he's wrong about Aramaic. So here are two things with which I must contend. First, the apostles themselves called their language Hebrew not Aramaic or Syriac, which was known in Scripture from ancient times. So if the apostles called their language Hebrew, I would not call it Aramaic. But secondly, and more importantly, the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament were originally written in Greek And all of the known Aramaic translations are more recent. There are no Aramaic copies or versions which predate the earliest Greek and even Latin copies. Additionally, there is much internal evidence which shows that they were all originally written in Greek and are not translations from another language. So compare continues. In Greek, Yahshua's name was written, Jesus. That part of the Christian church, which was in the Western Roman Empire, where Latin was the official language of government, as well as the native tongue of most of those who lived in Italy, eventually translated the Bible into Latin. The translations that were made by Jerome about 400 AD became the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church. That's the Vulgate and that's true. But there were Latin translations of Greek New Testament scriptures and perhaps some Greek Old Testament scriptures from a time long before Jerome. But very, very few of them survive because Jerome's edition became favored by the roman church so the text is called it's loosely referred to as old latin when somebody says old latin manuscripts they mean latin translations of scripture that pre-existed jerome that were made before the time of jerome back to compare in latin the savior's name is written either jesus or jesus I-E-S-U-S, or J-E-S-U-S. When the first English translations were made, the long familiar spelling Jesus was kept. Camper noted that it was pronounced Yesus in Latin, and that is correct. It wasn't pronounced Jesus in Latin. So he says, this was not difficult because the letter J was written was for many centuries just another form of the letter I, as it still is in the Germanic and Scandinavian languages. Early English had inherited this from its beginnings as the Anglo-Saxon language. Not until much later did the letter J develop its modern English sound. And this was the subject of one of my early papers, Yahshua to Jesus, Evolution of a Name, where it is explained in much greater detail. But Compare continues. As you learned in my lesson entitled, Who is Your God? The name of God in Hebrew is Yahweh. This also appears a number of times in a shortened form, Yah. In Hebrew, Hoshea means Savior. You are familiar with it as the name of a prophet who wrote one of the books of the Old Testament. Our English translations pronounce it Hosea. By combining Yah, God, and Savior, the Hebrew name Yahoshua was formed. More familiar to us in the Anglicized form of Joshua. The Hebrew form of Hosea actually means only salvation. Where the Hebrew form of Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. So compare is slightly confused. I would not add Yah to Hoshea. Furthermore, the spelling of the Hebrew form of Joshua in the Septuagint Greek is Jesus, the same name as Christ in the New Testament. And that is a better determinant of how it was pronounced in Hebrew, I would reject Yehoshua. Again, continuing with compare, it's the stem shua, which is related to the concept of saving. There is every reason to believe this was the name of our Savior. He did not come. I'm sorry, he did come in the name of the Father, Yah the shortened form of Yahweh, with the further statement that Yah was Savior, Yah-shua. We don't need the ho in there that we see in Hosea. We note that Yahshua said in John 5.43, I am come in my father's name. When Yahshua entered the city of Jerusalem on his last visit there, which led to his crucifixion, the people greeted him with joyous enthusiasm, as recorded in Matthew 21.9. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. Hosanna in the highest. Christ came in his father's name. He was sent by the father and he repeated frequently that he came only to do the will of the Father. But he never expressed his own will, nor did he come in his own name. Things which he may have done if he were an external, but separate and equal God, as the Roman Catholics claim. He didn't do that. He didn't have a will. He only had the will of God. And his name was the name of God as Savior. Yahshua, Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh Savior. It's interpreted in various different ways. Now continuing again with Bertrand Camparé. Some people have said that Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Yahushua. But this is not true. The Greek equivalent or translation of Yah Savior would be Yah Soter. and, And that's not really true either. In all cases where the translators took Hebrew or Aramaic names and tried to roughly translate them with Greek letters, they bungled the job very badly. There is not one Old Testament name which appears in the Greek New Testament in a form very similar to the original Hebrew. Jesus is an attempt to write Yahoshua in Greek, botched as usual. And in my opinion, Tampere should have left this one alone. He is basically claiming that he knows how the name was pronounced in both Hebrew and Greek better than the men who actually spoke both Hebrew and Greek. So he should have left this alone. The form Yesus is consistent for the Hebrew form of Yahshua in both the Septuagint and the New Testament. And we should accept that the apostles knew what they were doing when they used it in their Gospels and Epistles. Compare is assuming that they did not know what they were doing. And I think that that is somewhat arrogant. We can't make that assumption. So now compare concludes. To sum it all up, the Bible clearly proves that our Savior, Yahshua the Christ, was Yahweh. We should probably say is Yahweh, because Yahshua Christ is not was. <laughs> Yahweh had taken human form in order to make the sacrifice for our sins on the cross. He is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even his name in Hebrew and Aramaic proclaims that he was Yahweh, God the Savior. Remember that Yahshua told his disciples, He that has seen me has seen the Father. Yahshua will soon return to reign as King of Kings. Then we too will be able to see the Father. And of course, with this we must agree. But to settle some other contentions concerning the nature of God in the Old Testament, We will share the notes which Clifton Emmerheiser had added to the end of the sermon, as Clifton saw that the same subject needed to be addressed. And he said, Many are confused with the Hebrew term Elohim, believing that it is always plural. Now, that is true for the many pagan gods. But when Elohim used in conjunction with Yahweh, when it is used in conjunction with Yahweh. It is in every case singular. These are the grammatical rules for the Hebrew explained by Michael H., or I'm sorry, Michael S. Heiser, PhD candidate, Department of Hebrew and Semitic Studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Here are excerpts from Heiser's work. Now, I must warn that Heiser is a Jew, but his work in this area of grammar, which was also supposed, it it was also intended to oppose the lies of the fool of Zechariah Sitchin, another Jew. His work here is sufficient and fairly accurate. So now Clifton cites some of his statements. The word Elohim can mean either plural, gods, or singular, God. Now, anybody that picks up a Bible and a Strong's Concordance should be able to figure out what Heiser writes here. There's nothing really special about it. But Clifton, I guess, decided to provide someone who supposedly has credentials in the study of Hebrew rather than do it himself, which is fine. That's fine. In this case... So Heiser says, the word Elohim can mean either plural gods or singular God or God as a proper name. The meaning of any occurrence of Elohim must be discerned in three ways. One, grammatical indications elsewhere in the text that help to determine if a singular or plural meaning is meant. Two, grammatical rules in Hebrew that are true in the language as a whole. And three, historical or logical context. Now, I would not say God is a said a title then I would agree. Nevertheless, he continues, Michael Heiser. To continue, what I'm saying is that, by itself, the word Elohim is ambiguous in meaning. And that is true, because you don't know if it refers to one God, many gods. As are all words to some extent, it needs to be put into a sentence. And then he makes a parenthetical remark. I hope I don't have to define sentence. Now, I believe it was me that actually told Clifton about Michael Heiser back while I was in prison. And I was listening to a late night talk show. I think it was Art Bell. I'm not sure. Something like that. Maybe one of his substitutes. But anyway, that they had always had this Zechariah Sitchin on their talk show back, um, I guess, in Sitchin's heyday. And Zechariah Sitchin was always claiming that The Elohim in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, was actually a multitude of gods creating men. And of course, that is a lie. And Sitchin was taking advantage of this plural form of Elohim to sell his lie. So Heiser was actually countering, and he even mentions him here, Heiser was countering this nonsense from Zechariah Sitchin. But what Heiser is saying here, even though he was a Ph.D. candidate, what he's saying here can be figured out by anyone with a King James Version Bible and a Strong's Concordance. That this grammar determines that the way that the word is being used. Now, an interlinear Hebrew Bible would help, of course because then you could actually see the forms of each verb. We have words, continuing with Heiser. We have words like this in English, these ambiguous words, such as deer, sheep, fish. The point is, you need other words to help you tell if one or more than one of these animals is meant. Sometimes these other words are verbs that will help you tell. Compare the two examples. And this first example, the sheep is lost. The word is, is a singular verb. It goes with a singular subject. One wouldn't say, for example, I are lost. You would use a verb that goes with the singular subject, I am lost. So, two, the sheep are lost. The word are is a plural verb. Again, another word next to our noun, sheep, tells us, in this case, that plural sheep are meant. All of this is just basic grammar, and every language has grammar. Biblical Hebrew has its own ways of telling us if Elohim means one person or many gods it matches the noun Elohim to singular or plural verbs or with singular or plural pronouns. To use sheep again as an example, those sheep are white. The word those is what's called a demonstrative pronoun. It automatically tells us that sheep in this sentence is meant to be understood as a plural Otherwise, you would say the sheep is white. So he gives examples from scripture to show that the Elohim of Genesis chapter 1 and other passages is singular or plural. And he says, example number one, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the verse below, the noun Elohim should be translated as singular because the verb with which it goes, it's the subject of the verb, in the sentence is singular. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He has the Hebrew form of the verb bara, which is a third person, masculine singular form. In the beginning, God, Elohim, Created the heaven and the earth, if the verb were plural, then we would be grammatically forced to translate in the beginning, the gods created the heaven and the earth. Grammar tells us which it is singular or plural. Clifton tells us Heiser next cites his example too psalm chapter eighty two verse one. Elohim occurs twice, once as singular, the second time is plural. This is a psalm of Asaph. God, the word Elohim, stands in a divine assembly. He judges among the gods, which is also Elohim. But that verb for stands is a singular verb. We know the first Elohim is singular, because of grammar. It is coupled with a singular verb. That verb stands. The verb, the verbal form is a masculine singular participle. God stands. Because the participle is singular. Not the gods stand if the participle was plural. The second Elohim form is plural because of grammar as well, as it is placed next to a preposition that requires plurality. The preposition here means in the midst of, and you can't be in the midst of one person. So a plural is required. God stands in the divine assembly. He judges among. That's that preposition, among the gods. So Elohim there must be translated plural because of the grammar. Where in the first part of the same verse, it must be translated as singular. Example three. Heiser says, the creation of humankind in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. In Genesis chapter one, the grammar tells us Sitchin, Zechariah Sitchin, is wrong. Genesis one twenty-six to 27, the words of the verse are underlined. Now, first, let, let me just say that, of course, Adam kind is not humankind. But as I said, Heiser is a Jew, so his learning is corrupted with Jewish opinions. He gets the grammar mechanically correct, but his, his opinions are wrong. By Jewish reasoning, if Abraham was a Jew because he was an ancestor of Judah, then Adam would have also been a Jew, and all humankind would have to be all Jews. But we shall complete Heiser's last example. And God, Genesis 126, said, The verb is grammatically singular, and God said is a, the Hebrew form is a third person masculine singular. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, Heiser says. These are references to God's divine counsel, composed of the other Elohim in Psalm 82.1. And angels, if you read the facade, you'll learn about the divine council. Now, we do not necessarily have to agree with the opinion of the divine council in those precise terms. And I certainly do not because Psalm chapter 82, verse one is actually a prophecy of Christ who stood in the midst of his people which are the assembly of the Elohim, and ask them how long it would be that they would suffer the wicked. For how long will you suffer the wicked? I'm paraphrasing. So I disagree with Heiser there. However, the point is to prove that a singular Elohim created man. Later, and throughout scripture, Yahweh God is credited for the entire creation, but as Christ in the New Testament. There are often protests, that Christ cannot be the same as the Father, based on things that he had done and said during his earthly ministry, even in spite of his many plain statements, because they appear to be contradictory. Yet in other aspects, Christ had also spoken plain truths, and the apostles did not understand what he was saying until after it happened. And this aspect is no different. For example, Christ explicitly told his apostles how he would be killed and resurrected, and they did not understand that until after the fact. So, Christ, in many ways, explicitly told them that he was God, and they didn't understand that until after the fact. So, in John chapter 8, verse 28. Christ himself had told his adversaries that once they crucified him, it would be revealed that he is God, where we read in the King James Version. Then said Jesus unto them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my father had taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed on him. Where Christ said, then you shall know that I am he. He was making a direct reference to the passages in Isaiah concerning the Redeemer. From Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. Who has wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first and the last, I am he. And again from Isaiah chapter 43. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. So there's no God that's a Holy Spirit emanating from the Father. There's no son that's a God emanating from the Father Besides him, before him there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. And this is Yahweh speaking. I, even I, am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and I have showed. When there was no strange God among you, therefore ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yeah, before the day was. Before the coming of Christ. Before the day was. I am he. And that's what Christ said. When you lift up the son of man. Then you will know that I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work. And who shall let it? But at the same time. Christ always spoke as a man as he continually referenced the Father, even after his resurrection. But that does not mean that he is not also the Father, Yahweh God being Almighty. If we really believe that he is, then we can accept that he can be whatever he chooses to be, and that he could be both the Son and the Father. While there is only one God, and Yahshua Christ is the character of his person. A Greek word which actually means substance, hypostasis, as Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 1. Then, as Christ often used himself to make examples of the attitudes which men should have. In Matthew chapter 19 we read, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. So this is also used as an example that Christ is distinct from God and that he was not good. However, it is only an example that Christ did not want to be worshipped as a man because the scripture says in the 143rd Psalm, which Paul cited in Romans chapter 3, that in thy sight shall no man living be justified. But as we see in John chapter 20, the fact of the resurrection is indeed the revelation that Christ is God. So in John chapter 20, verse 28, we read, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Thou hast believed what? That Yahshua Christ is God, that he is Yahweh God. Thomas didn't think that that meant that he was part of a trinity. And Christ wasn't saying that. Christ simply said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So we also read in Matthew chapter 28, after his resurrection, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Sadly, some of his people still doubt. It is very clear after the resurrection is revealed the fact that he is God. Another example of Christ speaking from the perspective of a man is found in john chapter 17 where we read i have glorified thee on the earth i have finished the work which thou gavest me to do christ is making a prayer addressing yahweh god the father and now O father glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which i had with thee before the world was christ being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world as it is professed in the Revelation. This only refers to the foreknowledge of God, that he would enter his own creation. We cannot interpret John 17, verse 5, in a manner in which it conflicts with Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, where we read, in a prophecy of the gospel itself, if you want to read the entire passage, I am Yahweh, That is my name. My glory will I not give to another. My glory will I not give to another. Christ saying, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Yahweh saying in Isaiah, With my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. They must be one and the same. They can't be two separate gods. So in Revelation chapter three, Christ had called himself the beginning of the creation of God. Yet the beginning of the creation of Yahweh, so far as it is illustrated in scripture, is not some other God called the son, but rather the very beginning of the creation of God, the first thing that God created on the earth is the light of Genesis chapter one, verse three. That light is the light come into the world, which is the introduction of Yahweh, the invisible God into the physical world as Yahshua Christ. The account of the creation in scripture is not meant to be a scientific treatise, but rather it is written in a way so as to attest to the truth's later revealed in the gospel and revelation of Christ. When John said that Christ was the light come into the world, he was referring to that light in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, which man had never seen before Christ came into the world, the beginning of the creation of God. I'm not done with Trinity, I'm sure, but I'm done for this evening. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Israel, the one and only God of Israel, Yahshua Christ, and good night.